Fellow students, if you would open to Acts 5, we're going to finish up uh, Acts 5 today, Lord willing, and then next week we'll be jumping into 6. Let me give you a bit of a context on where we've been. Acts is the second volume written by the Apostle Luke. Luke volume 1, of course, is the Gospel, and that records what Jesus began to do and began to teach when he was here on earth physically present. The second volume of Luke, the book of Acts, really continues the ministry of Jesus, not through himself, he's in heaven, but through his apostles. So it has to do with the ministry continuation through the apostles. Their task, and our task is identical, is of course to take the gospel to the nations so that everyone has an opportunity to be reconciled to God and live forever in heaven. Now it's extremely apparent when you look through this book that the task of taking the gospel to the nations is impossible to complete in human strength. Here's something for you to jot down. God's work requires God's power. God's work requires God's power. Many times we humans get frustrated trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit instead of letting the Holy Spirit do the work himself. That's called us in the way and him off the throne and so we know what we need to do there and that's surrender. So Jesus promised that when he went back to heaven, he would not leave us alone. He would send God the Holy Spirit back to earth to indwell us, to direct and empower and control those of us who follow him. Acts 2, as you recall, several weeks ago, records the coming of the Holy Spirit where the tongues of fire were on the heads of the apostles and the mighty rushing wind came through. So the Holy Spirit then empowered Peter, as you recall in Acts 2. Peter preaches this sermon and 3,000 people become saved in one day. So the church goes from 120 baby Christians, actually not quite babies, but it adds 3,000 new Christians in a 24-hour period. And we mentioned that that's really the dream of every pastor and the nightmare of every pastor. 3,000 new believers is a lot to follow up on. But the Holy Spirit gives the 12 apostles supernatural power. So when you go through this book, you're gonna see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and that is for a purpose. Miracles demonstrate to the Jewish world that this message, this gospel message, is from God and not from man. It demonstrates that the gospel was not invented by man, it's revealed by God. So the miracles continue for the purpose of establishing the authenticity of the gospel message. And remember, recall in Acts 3 a few weeks ago, we went through where Peter and John heal a lame man. This guy's been lame from birth. He's begging by the temple gate, beautiful, and Peter and John heal him. Actually, Peter does the healing through the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the second sermon. 5,000 more come to faith. So the growth of the church is magnificent. Now, one thing to understand, Jerusalem at this point in time probably has around 80,000 people. The church has around 20,000 people. Now granted, so a lot of them are visitors from foreign countries. They came to the Feast of Pentecost, but it's now several weeks later. Now, if you're the Jewish leadership and you've been large and in charge and running the show for years and years and years, and 25% of the population comes to Christ within the next couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks, do you think you would notice? Bakersfield's got roughly, let's say, Metro 400,000 people. If 100,000 new Christians came to this city came to faith in, a, in, let's say, a matter of two months, do you think it would make a difference? I think we'd have police officers that would say, yeah, there's a significant difference in human behavior. That would be significant. That's exactly what happens here at that point. So it's impossible to ignore. And now we're going to see recorded today the Jewish leadership really begins to oppose the gospel because their power base is really getting threatened at that point in time. They tried, last week we noticed they try and intimidate them into silence. They bring him in front of the council, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and they try and intimidate him. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, indicts them. I mean, the tables really get turned, and we talked about that last week, and that's on tape if you want to get that. The church now is flourishing. Three weeks ago, we looked at the marks of a church that is really walking with Jesus, and they love each other. They care for each other. They care for each other financially as well as spiritually. Their prayer life is active. Their worship life is active. And their evangelism is active. So, so far, what we've seen is explosive growth in this new church. Anytime the gospel grows, opposition to the gospel will also grow. In chapter 2, verse 41, let me just give you a flavor of how Luke presents this. It says, there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. In chapter 4, 4, 
The number of the men only who believed came to be about 5,000. Well, if you put families in that, probably about 20,000. Chapter 5, verse 14. There were multitudes, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to the church. Multitudes and constantly. And chapter 6, verse 7, it says the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. So throughout this book, you see the church grow. This is explosive evangelism. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said what? I will build, you know, my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Jesus did not say that the gates of hell wouldn't try to stop. He just said the gates of hell would fail in their attempt. Remember, God's kingdom of light is invading Satan's kingdom of darkness. So conflict and confrontation are inevitable. They're expected. Don't be surprised. Jesus wants to save people. Satan wants to keep people enslaved, right? The gospel is setting prisoners free. Do you think Satan's evil empire is going to strike back? Yeah, he's not going to let people go without a fight, for heaven's sakes. He wants them in hell. That's his whole agenda at this point in time. So last week, we took a brief look at how Satan attacked the church from the inside. Remember, he tempted Ananias and Sapphira to give a gift and then lie about it, lie to God, lie to the church and say, well, it was really X, but it really wasn't X. It was Y, because they were trying to buy the approval of people with a donation to God. This was a very greedy, self-centered couple. And they lied to God, and that sin was so deadly to the new church that God removed them by taking their lives on the spot. It said that everybody responded with holy fear. And we mentioned last week, if someone died out front here by lying to God, I expect there would be a little holy fear. There should be, right? So the theme today, you're going to see this, as the gospel advances, the persecution intensifies. So if you start today at verse 12, you're going to notice that the church is continuing to grow and thrive. And we want to discuss today how the church fulfills its mission to bring the gospel, the good news to the nations. Remember, evangelism literally means to announce. It means to announce, to bring good news. And the good news, of course, is that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sins so that every, you can have a relationship with God forever in heaven. That's the whole point. We want to talk about the five keys to effective evangelism today. Rob is not here. He's on the East Coast, so I'm sorry we won't have an outline on the screen. But I'm going to give you five very simple words that will be the five keys to effective evangelism. And they all begin with the letter P. Letter P. So if you're taking notes, purity, power, persecution, persistence, and providence. So I'm going to keep coming back to those. So if we don't get them all at once, we'll get them. Purity, power, persecution, persistence, and providence. I need to tell you, I stole those five words from John MacArthur, but I'm going to do something a little different than what John did with him. So the first essential to effective evangelism is purity, because purity is essential. The central message of the gospel is what? Jesus Christ changes people, right? Jesus Christ turns sinners into saints. He cleanses people from the filth of sin and makes them whiter than snow. See, Jesus not only changes our eternal destination from hell to heaven, he transforms our life right now. I know some of your stories. You, know, you obviously know your own story. Would you say that Jesus Christ has made a difference in your world, in your life? Yeah. Amen. We're here because of that. Now, people who claim to know Jesus Christ had better live like it, or their behavior makes them a liar. See, someone who claims to be a peace-loving person, but when I go down to the courthouse and find out they've got an arrest record for multiple assaults, but they're peaceful, what do you believe? Do you believe the behavior or do you believe the words? Probably by the behavior. Last week we spent a long time going over hypocrisy and we would call these people hypocrites. They don't live consistent with what their actions, what their words are. In the same way, <clears throat> an impure sinning church is a hypocrite. An impure sinning Christian is a hypocrite. We claim that Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins, but then if we don't live like that, it makes us a liar. Someone who knows Jesus should live differently than someone who doesn't. 
I want you to know, and you were here last week, that Jesus Christ is utterly committed to purifying your life. As a matter of fact, he's more committed to purifying your life than you are, which is probably a good thing, because some of us aren't all that committed, right? We know that God's committed to purifying his church because of how he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. If you, if you look at chapter 5, we're in chapter 5, go to verse 4. Peter brings the indictment. He says to Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, as he heard those words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Verse 11, this would be a good response if someone dies in church. And great fear came upon the whole church and all upon those who heard of these words. Verse 13, but none of the rest, that means the outsiders, dared associate with people at that church. However, the people held them in high esteem. See, God's not forever going to tolerate the cancer of sin. He's a patient, loving God. But when God removed Ananias and Sapphira, he said, I'm done. It says the church responded with holy fear. You know, as a matter of fact, when you encounter God's holy judgment, the only proper response is holy fear. I didn't, um, I never, I didn't see my father get angry very often. But when he did, holy fear was a really good response, right? Really appropriate response. The church learned with Ananias and Sapphira that you cannot take God's holy character casually. You cannot treat God's holiness casually. How many of you read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? We have some folks, okay. They're quite good, as a matter of fact. They're, I can even read them, which is good. In the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the king of beasts, Aslan, is portrayed as this lion, and he's depicted as a type of God, right? All, all, the Father, Heavenly Father. So Aslan, this great lion, is a good lion, but he's not a safe lion. After all, he's a lion, right? He's not a kitty cat. Kitty cats eat dainty food prepared by doting parents, right? I mean, little kitty cats. Lions kill what they eat. And it's not a pretty sight to watch them kill, right? You could be their next snack. You can't control lions. See, humans, many, many humans want a kitty cat god. They want a God that they can safely control. They want a God that they can fence in. They want a God they can control and tell what to do. And scripture says that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's a holy God. He's the judge and creator at all. He's a perfectly good God, but he's not a safe God that you can control. God is God. And he hates the filth of sin and he disciplines his church in order to purify the church because he loves her. God has delegated today most of the discipline to the church itself. And matter of fact, he tells us in Matthew 18, if you want to know how the church should keep herself pure, here's what it is, Matthew 18. And by the way, this works for you one-to-one -to -one too, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and talk to them in private, just the two of you, one-to-one. -one. If they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister, right? If they don't listen to you, take one or more with you, one or more witnesses, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church at large. And if they refuse to listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax gatherer, which means we're going to not have fellowship with that person because they're committed to practicing sin. Here's why that's so important. Last week, we talked about sin being like the Ebola virus. What do we know about the Ebola virus? Is it contagious? Is it lethal once you get it? We take extreme steps to quarantine the Ebola virus because it kills, it spreads and destroys. Sin inside the church is like the Ebola virus. It spreads, it permeates, and by the way, it does in your own heart too, right? If you tolerate a sin in your life, can you quarantine that sin and keep it apart from the rest of your life? If you tolerate one sin in an area of your life, you know what happens? It grows. It grows. It spreads. It's like an Ebola virus. So Jesus gave us a process in the church to purify the church. He also gave us a process to keep ourselves pure. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we, you know, confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and 
cleanse, right? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's something we probably should do multiple times a day. Um, how many of you sin less than once a day? Okay, you only need that once a day. But for the rest of us, that should probably be on our lips pretty regularly, right? Pretty regularly. So Acts 5.13 tells us that when God purified his church by removing this sinning couple, nobody in the community was willing to associate with that church. You know why? They didn't want God to deal with their sin. You and I have friends who you've invited to church and they won't come. Do you know why some of them won't come? They know that this is a place where God deals with sin. And they know that when the word is preached, they feel uncomfortable. Now, they may not know what it is, but if you love your sin, this church will not be a place you like. Because God's word takes a sword and sticks it in the heart and says, you need to deal with that, it's killing you. Right? That's what the word of God does and that's what God does in love. The people that wouldn't come to this fellowship, they loved their sin and they didn't want God to deal with it. Only people who wanted Jesus to take away their sin would show up to church. You know, to that extent, a church is kind of like a hospital. Church is like a hospital where God does surgery on us every week. How many of you feel when you walk out of a sermon sometimes that you've had surgery done? I mean, the word of God has just scrubbed your soul, right? Sometimes it feels like surgery without anesthetic, you know? But you don't check into a hospital and tell the doctor, I don't want to have the surgery. I mean, the whole point of going to the hospital is to get well, right? You're going to have the surgery to get well. So the church is not a place where sinners should feel comfortable they should feel convicted. Because when you have sin in your life, you should feel bad, right? Say yes, you should feel bad. Guilt is God's way of telling us that we have a problem. Most of the time when we're feeling guilty, it's because we are guilty. That's God's way of saying, here's the symptom, you need to deal with it. I was reading an article this week. I didn't know this. But if you have persistent chest pains, it's obviously telling you there's a problem. What I didn't realize is more than half of people with cardiac symptoms ignore them. We used to think it was the giant heart attack, no warning, drop dead. Sometimes that's true. Many, many times there's weeks and weeks of symptoms. And you know what we do? Especially us males, we ignore them. We rationalize them. I had a friend of mine who's a therapist. He's got a sign in his office. He said, real men uh, don't cry. They just have heart attacks. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, that was pretty potent. So if you have symptoms of cardiac arrest or pain in your chest, deal with it. Go get help. Don't wait till it kills you. In the same way, the good news for us is that Jesus Christ is our cardiac specialist because he can not only mend broken hearts, Scripture tells us, he gives us a what? Brand new heart. Brand new heart. Heart to seek Him. So purity is essential. The second key for effective evangelism is power. So when the church is pure, and you and I are pure, we become an effective channel then that God can rotate His power through. So the second essential for effective evangelism is God's power. And here's the good news. Power is available. Power is available. Verse 12. And at the hands of the apostles, many uh, signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That was an area where they met inside the temple complex. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. The church is growing big time. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets. I mean, there's no hospitals then, folks, right? They carried the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter walked by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. They believed that that would heal. Scripture doesn't say his shadow healed. It says they believed that it would heal. Verse 16. And also all the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people that were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And you can underline this last phrase. And they were all being healed. 
Now, there's a lot of supernatural power going on at work during this period of time, and its purpose is not just to physically heal, it's to validate the gospel so that people understand that this message is from God. You know there are people throughout our world who claim to have a message from God. What was the name of the flick? Blues Brothers? They were on a message from God, is that right? Okay, I'm just... Hey, pardon? A mission from God, okay. Lots of people claim they're on a mission from God. Lots of people. The number of people that told me, well, God told me to do this. Really? I think your chili rellenos that you ate last night told you to do that. You had a nightmare. It wasn't God speaking to you because God speaks in his word. It's pretty clear. So the question is, how do you know that this message is really from God and how do you know it's not? Well, God says, I'm going to authenticate my message through miracles. I'm going to demonstrate that this message is from me because I'm going to do miracles that only God can do. Now, God did this back when he was establishing, the church was young, he was establishing his message. At this point in time, we have the body of truth written here. You don't have to look far for truth. It's written down. Anybody you can read knows what God has to say. This is one of the most amazing things of all. You can read the Bible and you know what God says, right? Say yes. I know you can read. So the question is not, do we know? The question is, do we do what we know at that point in time? So at this point in time, the sick are being healed, the demons are being exercised, so it's a unique time in history. As a matter of fact, it says they're bussing people in on the Greyhound from these surrounding regions, bringing them into Jerusalem to get healed, because Peter and, the gospel, Peter and uh, John and the apostles obviously have power at that point in time. What is so interesting is that you will never hear of any enemy of the gospel dispute the miracles. The Pharisees can't stand this, but no one is saying the miracles are not happening. There's thousands of eyewitnesses to these healings. And no one says, oh, it's real clear you weren't healed. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago, we found out Peter and John healed the lame man. Even the Sanhedrin couldn't dispute it. It was obvious they'd seen this guy begging, they themselves, for 40 years, and now he can walk. It was eyewitness, empirical evidence. So the miracles were occurring and Satan is obviously going to step up his attack at this point in time. So whenever you see the gospel thriving, and every time you see God's power at work, remember that Satan's persecution is right behind it. And we're going to see that right now in verse 17. So here's the third key to effective evangelism. Purity is essential, power is available. Third one, persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. I was going to say persecution is helpful. And I think it is. But you notice, I haven't been persecuted. I have no stripes on my back. So it's very easy for me to say persecution is helpful. I think it is, and God may at some point in time arrange for that. But persecution is inevitable, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, along with all of his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with... What? Jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. So wherever you see God's power, you see Satan's persecution at working at that point in time. Persecution is very predictable. Expect it. You won't be surprised. Prepare for it. Anytime you tell proud, self-righteous, affluent, secure human beings that they're sinners and that they're going to hell if they don't have a Savior, do they like it? The first time somebody told me that, I came to faith at my mother's knee about five years old and about 15 I decided that I was going to do my thing. I knew it was true. I just decided to be disobedient. I thought all of you people in church were a bunch of lunatics. Serious lunatics. I thought these people are nuts. You would get on your knees and bow before a God. I don't bow before anybody. And now you're one of us. And now I, oh yeah, baby. <laughs> God, you know, yeah, God put me on my face. God has ways, I'm telling you. You know, it's interesting. Someone said, well, how was God so effective with Apostle Paul? And I said, well, he's got recruiting techniques you don't know, man. Blind him with lightning, throw him on the ground. I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit's got some power here, right? John MacArthur came to faith. He was going to pursue an athletic scholarship, his, his uh, records. He's, he's talked about this. And he told God, ministry, I'm going for athletic scholarship. Well, he got in a car accident. It didn't hurt him, but it scraped all the hide off his body, hands and everything, and he had a couple of months of laying in bed to heal. God can get your attention when you're immobile. Have you noticed? 
right? So there are ways for God to bring reality into your life and praise his name. He did. He had to break my heart and my body too at that point in time. So the persecution here comes from the Sanhedrin. They are not going to listen. Now remember, we said last week, they're the Supreme Court and the Congress and the legislature of the nation of Israel. The high priest is the presiding officer over the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is now, at this point in time, very political. It's supposed to be a religious body that's concerned with the spiritual welfare of its membership. It's actually morphed into probably more political and more economic. It was all about exercising power over the people and getting rich in the process. Does this sound familiar? I mean, something's never changed, right? It's the nature of human nature. So the ruling party in the Sanhedrin was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were in bed with Rome. They were political allies. They wanted to rule, and as long as Rome gave them a carte blanche to rule, they maintained their power base. So the Sadducees were the political allies of Rome. They were collaborators, and in some cases, they were more loyal to Rome than they were to their own people in Israel. It's interesting, they only believed the five books of the Bible. That's it. Nothing else existed for them. And they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in the supernatural. Interesting, Moses believed in all of them, but they didn't. So the picture is the crowds are now following the apostles. There's 20,000 new believers. The city of Jerusalem's turning upside down, and the Sadducees are jealous. By the way, they crucified Jesus out of jealousy because his crowds were bigger than their crowds, right? Among other things. So two chapters ago, they had already warned the apostles, I'm sorry, last chapter, to shut up, be quiet, don't, don't speak, don't talk about Jesus you're humiliating us, your crowds are bigger than ours, shut up. That didn't help. The, the apostles kept on preaching, so the Jewish leaders now have to ramp it up a bit more. So they have them arrested and they throw them in a public jail. By the way, public jails then were not exactly public jails now. You didn't even want to know what a public jail was like then. I mean, a dungeon was a nice description at that point in time. This was not a nice place. Interestingly enough, where the gospel is working, Satan persecution comes. Wherever you see Satan's persecution, you know what you see? More of God's power. So we're back to God's power. After the persecution comes God's power. Verse 19. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, verse 20, go your way. Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. God must have a great sense of humor. What did I just say? The Sadducees don't believe in angels. So what does God send to break the apostles out of prison? An angel. To open and set them free. Now, <clears throat> they were not set free to take a vacation, were they? They were not set free to file a disability claim. They were not set free to go run and hide to the hills. They were set free to accomplish God's purpose. Same with us. We were not saved to sit. We were not saved to wait for Jesus to come back. We were saved because God has purpose for us. He's got work for us to do. He saved us because he loves us, but having loved us and saved us, he says, I've got things for you to accomplish. You know, the only reason you're still here is because your work's not done. You know when your work's done? You won't be here. So the question is, if your work's not done, what is it? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing while you're taking up space on the planet? I hope you do. God has purpose for you. That's why he gave you spiritual gifts. He gave you God himself, the Holy Spirit living in you. He's given you a church body to serve within. And he's given you a world that needs the gospel. You think there's enough work for you to do? Enough sinners to go around? Okay. I know, I know. You go, Brad, just put the pitchfork away, please. I feel it. If you're in this class, you know the pitchfork. It's what it is. The gospel is the reason we're still here. Many of us think that when we're being opposed, when we're being persecuted, when we're being ridiculed, when we're being shunned, when our friends don't want to talk to us anymore because we're Jesus freaks, we think we're doing something wrong. Actually, that's a pretty good sign. If you're being persecuted, if you have opposition from Satan, that means you're probably on the right track because he doesn't waste his energy on people who aren't doing anything. 
He's going to put his opposition into, into tactics that are effective. So if Satan begins to oppose you, it's a sign you're being effective. And by the way, the opposition doesn't always mean getting thrown in jail. Sometimes it's a lot more basic than that. Sometimes I think Satan works just by saying to us, you know, you've done enough. Just relax. Let those young people carry the load for a while. They need to work like you did, right? Sometimes Satan tempts us with the motorhomes. I'm not against motorhomes, but if you're spending six months a year in one, you better have a ministry in that motorhome or six months of the year, you're not doing what God wants you to do, right? There's nothing wrong with a motorhome. Just make sure that that is dedicated to what God wants it for, right? He gives us stuff for a reason, lots of reasons. Sometimes Satan tempts us not just with laziness, but um, with good things. Um, I have some friends that own vacation properties. No problem. Vacation property can be used of God. But I also have friends that bought vacation properties, and I haven't seen them in church in years because they're always at the coast, right? So any good thing that God gives you, Satan wants to corrupt. Satan wants to use it to take you out of circulation. All these things that God gives you, use them, give him praise, enjoy them, but remember, use them for the purpose he intended them for, which is also for the gospel. So the angel frees the apostles, and he gives them a direct command, and he says something that I think is very hard. He says, go back to the exact same place where they arrested you. Go back to the Sadducees' turf. Go back right into the temple, into the lion dens, and what? What does he say? What's the command? Speak the... The what? The whole message of this life. Why did he tell them to say the exact same things? How come he had to tell them not to water it down? How come he had to tell them don't dilute it? How come he had to tell them keep it full strength? It would be a temptation to do that. It would be a temptation to dial it back a little bit. I mean, once you've gotten hammered and thrown in jail for the gospel, and it'd be real easy to go, well, let's, let's soft it, let's soft pedal it. Kind of take the edge off. Don't tell them that, that they need a savior and that they're sinners. Just tell them that Jesus um, is a genie and a Santa Claus and he's going to make your life better and you can be your best self, right? Just, just kind of keep the message nice and light and happy and, and stroke the ego and maybe they'll let you alone. God says, speak my whole truth. Don't leave out a single word. You know, it's almost like a pharmaceutical prescription. If you leave out a single ingredient to a pharmaceutical pr prescription, it can go from helping someone to what? Maybe killing them, right? It's the same thing. What would you leave out of the gospel to make it more palatable for the world? And if it sent people to hell, is it worth it? Of course not. You haven't helped them at all. You've helped them on the way, the wrong way. Speak the whole message of this life. You know, it's, it's so easy to compromise when it comes to speaking God's truth. It's very easy to tell people that God loves them because they're special, and it's true. God does love them. It's harder to tell people that the reason Jesus died for them is because they're a sinner and that their sin separates them from God. And only through the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ dying in their place is the only way that they can be reconciled to God. And they need to come to a point of trusting Jesus Christ's forgiveness of their sins instead of trusting their own self. See, you don't ever help people by not telling the truth. I know I'm going to step on some toes. It's hard to speak truth. But it's essential to speak truth. You speak truth in love, but you speak truth. And it says the apostles did what? When did they show up in the temple? About daybreak. Where had they been all night? In jail. When did they obey? Immediately. Good model. As soon as they heard... They went to the temple, they're teaching the people no delayed obedience. Now, back at the ranch, the Sanhedrin, this Supreme Court of Israel, they send the temple police to the jail to bring the apostles in for an interrogation. Surprise, surprise, when they get there, they find what? The jail's locked up tight, the guards are all standing in place, right, just like they're supposed to. They open the prison up, and what do they find? Nothing. Where have we heard this before? 
Didn't we just go through an empty tomb here a couple of months ago? Right? An empty tomb that was sealed, right? Empty tomb with guards. They go inside, there's an empty tomb, and now we got an empty cell, jail cell. What's this all about? If you're the Sanhedrin, you're going, whoa, this is creepy crawly, right? We've been here before and it's happening again. It's deja vu all over again, right? No one's inside the jail. Here's what's interesting. The Sadducees who are running this show don't believe in the supernatural at all. If you can't see it, if I can't see it with my own eyes, I won't believe it. They got a real problem that says they were greatly perplexed. That's a nice way of saying they had their minds blown. Because there's no way they can explain it. How do you have guards standing watch who say, no one came, we didn't see a thing. All the jails locked tight, but it's empty. Well, there's no physical explanation how they got out of the jail cell. But it's obvious that they had some help, supernatural, which the Sadducees don't believe in. Now, this is a classic example of Satan's overreach. And Satan does this from time to time. He tries to shut down the gospel by doing what? Imprisoning the apostles. So you know what God does? God does a miracle that is so obviously demonstrating his supernatural power that Jesus is the Messiah and the apostles are in fact his messengers and they can't explain it other than supernaturally. Satan overreached and got stung on this one. Someone reports that the disciples are back in the temple. They're teaching the people. So the temple police go to the temple and ask the disciples to come back. You want to understand something here. It says they took them back, but it says without force. Without force for questioning. Now they didn't want to arrest them using force because if they compelled them to come back, what does it say the crowds would have done? Crowds would have stoned them, right? Here's the point. These apostles have been doing what the last two months? Healing people, casting out demons, right? Miracles are happening. The crowds love these apostles because they're doing good. The legislative body, the Supreme Court and the Congress of Israel want to jail them. If you're a member of the crowd who's been healed, how do you feel about that? You're not really happy. You're saying, why do you arrest people for doing good things? I can see the headlines the next morning. Temple police attacked by crowds for arresting people who do, do good by healing the sick. I mean, arrested for doing good is pretty hard to sell, even for a politician. The other thing you need to know is that the people at this point in time in Israel did not trust their leadership. Huh. Have we seen this before? Folks, we sometimes, and I don't, may, do, I don't want to get a political or I won't do that, but we look at human behavior in our culture and we go, I can't believe this. This has never happened before. This is unprecedented. <laughs> human behavior is sinful. It's been sinful since Adam and Eve. Expect bad behavior and you won't be surprised, Right? Pray for them because they need it. All leaders need prayer. That's why Romans 13 commands it at that point in time. But the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees especially, ran a very strong economic racket off the temple. They were getting very, very rich doing money changing and doing the sacrificial animals and selling them for a premium. So the crowds knew, the common person, that they were getting fleeced. There was no trust in them and the leadership at that point in time. So they go back willingly and once in front of the Sanhedrin, they're questioned. Go to verse 28. The high priest gets in front and he says to the apostles, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, when they said you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, you know what that is? That's an admission of their failure. They've said, we've tried to shut you up for, since Jesus was resurrected and we haven't been able to do it. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Who's winning? The gospel? Uh-huh. Big time. The second thing is, and this is terrifying. You can underline the last part of this verse. Intend to bring this man's blood on us. This is the same group that probably three and a half to four months before 
had screamed out to Pilate, his blood be on us and our children. In other words, we're going to take responsibility for all the consequences of crucifying Jesus Christ. I don't think they had a clue what they were saying. Now, when he said, you intend to bring this man's blood on us, the gospel is being proclaimed and Peter has indicted them for being the murderers of Jesus Christ. And their conscience is starting to get to them and they're furious about it. They're going to try and stop the consequences. So here's the fourth essential of effective evangelism. Purity is essential, power is available, persecution is inevitable, persistence is crucial. Persistence is crucial, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles said, you can underline this one because you will need it this week, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Are these apostles backing off? Are they soft peddling it? Are they compromising the truth? No, they're dead square saying, you crucified him, you hung him on the cross. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who you claim to serve, raised up Jesus Christ, exalted him as right hand as the prince and the savior, and he alone can forgive sins. And you killed him, and God raised him from the dead. They tell it like it is, and they do not dodge the issue of sin and repentance, and Jesus Christ alone can forgive sins. And they say, look, verse 32, we're eyewitnesses. We've seen it. And there are thousands of people in the city who are also eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And you can't deny it. And they couldn't. You know, the, the, the Sanhedrin could shut all this down with only one move. All they had to do is find the body of Jesus. Right? They found the body of Jesus. Argument done. This is a, this is a human doctrine. We're out of here. Could they find the body? I promise you they tried. I bet they were digging up graves around the city. I mean, they desperately wanted to find the body of Jesus because that would have shut the whole argument down. Obviously, the body of Jesus is in heaven. He was resurrected. It's clear. And they said, by the way, we're eyewitnesses of this too. Well, when you have God's power, Satan's persecution, God's power, you're going to get more persecution. This cycle is going to continue. Verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. Now, the word cut to the quick, some, some translations say cut to the heart. It means cut to the very core. Have you, the, the, the literal translation of cut to the quick means to saw in half. Have you ever had someone say, man, your, your words cut me? Ever anybody say that to you? Boy, those are, those are sharp words. They cut me. But it would be a different ball game if someone said, your words saw my heart in half. Wow. That means they were cut to the core, to the very core of their being. They were, now, when truth hits us and it cuts us to the heart, it saws our heart in half, we all have a choice. We can submit to that truth or we can resist that truth, right? How many of you have ever resisted truth? Yeah, I'm the head of that line too, right? Anytime God presents us with truth, you either have, you have a binary choice. You're either going to submit or you're going to resist. You can't say, well, I'll remain neutral. You can't do that. You're either on or you're not on. It's a binary choice. Some people submit to truth. Most people are going to react with extreme hostility. And this is one of the reasons why politically correct speech has such, gained such a foothold in our culture. Some people believe today that they have a right to not hear anything that makes them uncomfortable. They have a right. As a matter of fact, there are those who believe that anything that makes me uncomfortable should be banned as hate speech and prosecuted. And you look and you go, just grow up. Since when do you have a right not to hear anything that makes you uncomfortable? Life is going to deal you some cards, brother and sister, you don't like. Grow up. Don't laugh. Someday the gospel will very likely be labeled as hate speech. 
Because it makes people uncomfortable and they have a right not to be made uncomfortable. Brad, yes. Right? We have, we have a whole movement afoot that says, anything that makes me uncomfortable, I have a right to isolate myself from. And you say, you're going to resign from life? Well, they're going to, they're going to attempt to insulate themselves from anything that makes them uncomfortable. The reality is, we talked about it, chest pains are uncomfortable. I have a right not to have chest pains. You also have a right to die of a heart attack if you ignore them. Right? So we have to deal with reality. What this means, when the gospel is labeled as hate speech, which I fully believe it will at some point, it may be, I don't know if it happened in my life, Satan's not stupid, he's going to do whatever he can do to shut it down, that's when you will have a choice. Do I obey God and live with the consequences, or do I submit to man? It will be a choice. You've got the choice today, the stakes are probably going to get higher. The Sanhedrin is so angry they want to kill him. They literally want to kill him. And then we see the fifth point. So purity is essential, power is available. Uh, what did I say? Persecution's inevitable. Persistence. Say, hey, you guys are getting it. Persistence is what? Crucial. And now I'm going to give you the last one. Providence is Romans 8, 28. I'm going to tell you, providence is God's control of circumstances. Providence is God's control of circumstances. We now see Romans 8, 28 at work, verse 34. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he runs through a list of things he says to them. Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. He gives two historical examples, drop down to verse 38. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found to be fighting against God. And they took his advice. The apostles wind up being protected by one of their enemies. And you go, that's bizarre. No, that's divine. That's the Holy Spirit. A prominent Pharisee named Gamaliel, he's a very highly respected teacher of the law, he speaks up. Now remember, the Sadducees were the politicians loyal to Rome. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law, and they were respected by the common people. So the Pharisees had the loyalty of the crowds, the Sadducees had the loyalty of Rome. This man called Rabban Gamaliel the Elder, it's the only time anybody in Jewish history was ever given the name Rabban Gamaliel, it literally means master teacher, had tremendous influence. His most famous student was Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Now, when he spoke, everybody listened. And in essence, here's Gamaliel's argument. Since movements tend to die when their leaders die, don't sweat it. This man, Jesus, is dead, and the gospel movement will probably die on its own, so leave it alone. By the way, if it doesn't die, it's probably from God. So you don't want to be caught fighting against God. Now, that's human wisdom, but it's not very divinely wise because what Gamaliel should have said is, let's search the Old Testament to see if this Jesus and his message are true to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And if this Jesus and his message and the gospel are true to the Old Testament scriptures, then maybe he's our Messiah. Didn't want to go there, Right? Regardless, God uses a man who does not obey God to accomplish God's purposes and protect his people so that the gospel continue. That's providence, God's control over circumstances. In mid-October 1949, Billy Graham was in the middle of his Los Angeles crusade. He was relatively unknown at this point. Very little recognition. In mid-October, William Randolph Hearst sent a two-word telegram to his editors. Now, William Randolph Hearst ran a whole fleet of newspapers. He, was, he ran a big chunk of the newspapers nationally in the nation. Tremendous influence. Multiple newspapers. 
and he said a two-word telegram to his editors. And the two words were Puff Graham. Puff means put him on the front page. Put him in the spotlights. Put this guy in headlines and spotlights on the front page of all your local papers. It instantly made Billy Graham a celebrity, and it really launched an international ministry that lasted today, 50 years. Millions and millions and millions of people have come to faith as a result of Billy Graham's ministry. And Graham at Hearst never met before and never met since. Why did this occur? The providence of God. What does Romans 8:28 said? And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say that it's going to be good before the sun sets or by dinner. He's working it out for good. And by the way, for this good to occur, the apostles had to spend a night in jail. And you know why they went back willingly in front of the Sanhedrin? Another chance to preach the gospel to the Supreme Court of Israel. Would you not pass up that opportunity? Wouldn't that be a great a second time they were able to bring the gospel to the Supreme Court? Pretty good deal. I'll go to jail for that. I mean, the apostles had vision here at that point. But the point for us is, by the way, if you want to see the providence of God, read the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned once in the book of Esther, and God's hand behind the scenes is almost in every verse. And it happened to be that so-and-so occurred. It's the providence of God. God controls the circumstance. The good news for you and I is there's no circumstances that reaches you before it crosses your Heavenly Father's desk. Every single thing that happens in your life is Father-filtered. Everything. Everything. Now, where God's power and persistence occur, more persecution, verse 40b, they called the apostles in, they did what? They didn't beat them with a belt. 39 lashes could open your skin up all the way to the spinal column. And they ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. You say, well, God's providence spared their life, but God's providence didn't spare them from a flogging. You're right. It didn't. In God's providence, they were going to get flogged. Because suffering in this life is certain. Suffering is not an indication God doesn't love you. Suffering's inevitable. We live in a broken world and Satan hates you. You got a target on your chest, man. It's called a cross. Why would you think he's going to say, well, I'm, uh, let's give them some more ice cream, second helpings. Come on. See, sometimes we doubt God's love when he doesn't do things the way we want to. But you always must remember the old movie, what was it called, or the old TV series? Father Knows Best. He knows the future because it controls it. Last point, once again, more persistence. More persistence on the part of the apostles, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did what? Kept right on teaching Jesus Christ as Christ. You know, they didn't cry. They didn't whine. They didn't say, God, you don't love me. I got beat. They rejoiced that God would entrust suffering to them because Jesus Christ, their king, suffered as well. And they kept on preaching the gospel. That's persistence, persistence, persistence. Okay, let me give you a summary and then Tom will come up and do our prayer requests and praises. Here's the five keys to effective evangelism. Quick review. Purity is essential. Power is available. Persecution is inevitable. Persistence is crucial. And now that you know, do.